Today's reading is from John chapter 13, uh, verses 1 to 17, then verses 34 to 35. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realise now what I'm doing. But later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said, not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. <coughs> I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And Colossians chapter 1 verse 24. Now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, help us to understand what it means to be servants of the servant king. Humble us this morning, Lord. Open the eyes of our hearts to see the incredible way in which your son, the Lord Jesus, gave himself sacrificially for us. And may that so move us that we freely and willingly and joyfully give ourselves sacrificially for the sake of others. We need your Holy Spirit to do this enormous work in our hearts. So we pray, don't withhold his illumination from us. We ask all this in the name of your Son, to whom belongs all praise and glory, with you and the Holy Spirit forever and ever. Amen. Since September, we've been exploring our church, new church mission statement. And you've heard me say it many times by now, so let's say it one more time. We exist to be and to make disciples who love Jesus as their greatest treasure, learn Jesus as their way of life, and live Jesus for the renewal of the world. 
love Jesus, learn Jesus, live Jesus. Simples. And for the last few weeks, we've been looking at seven characteristics that we believe God wants us to embody if we're going to be faithful to that mission. So far, we've said that with God's help, we're committed to being a church that worships joyfully, prays dependently, lives radically, loves extravagantly and thinks biblically. And today we're looking at what it means to be a church that gives sacrificially. The way I want to do that is by beginning with a simple statement, which is drawn from those two Bible readings that we've heard. And then I want to spend the rest of our time unpacking what that means. So here's the statement. Jesus calls his people to live cross-shaped lives. Jesus calls his people to live cross-shaped lives. In his book, The Politics of Jesus, John Howard Yoder argues that there is only one place in the New Testament where Jesus is directly said to be our example. Now, now, of course, as apprentices of Jesus, we should be seeking to model the whole of our lives after his pattern. But what he's saying is that there's only one place in the New Testament where he is actually called our example. And that's here in John 13, 15, where Jesus says, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. The Greek word translated here as example in our English Bibles is hypodiagma and literally it means a, a pattern, an illustration or a model. It's the architect's blueprint showing how something is to be done and that's why John Howard Yoda says only at one point, only on one subject but then consistently, universally is Jesus our example in his cross. Jesus stoops down to wash the feet of his apprentices, the stinky feet, even of those who would betray him, deny him and doubt him. Feet soiled from the mud, muck and filth of an ancient city street which served the dual purpose of being a public sewer for humans and animals alike. All of which is just a dress rehearsal for his degrading death on the cross the next day. And Jesus says, this, this is the template I want you to follow. Jesus calls his people to live cross-shaped lives. The cross isn't just the way God saves us in Christ. It is what salvation in Christ looks like. The cross isn't just something Christ endured so that we can be forgiven and enjoy a new life much like the old one. The cross is what our new life in Christ is meant to look like. Jesus's sacrificial self-giving death is meant to enable us to live sacrificial self-giving lives. That's how God's kingdom comes into the world. That's how we're going to go about making disciples of all nations by showing them in our own lives, what the love of Jesus looks like. That's what the Apostle Paul means in those rather odd sounding words of Colossians 1.24, about filling up in his flesh what is lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions. John Piper explains with reference to a parallel passage in Philippians 2.30 about Epaphroditus supplying what was lacking in the church's support of him. That the lack 
in the sufferings of Christ today is a personal presentation on behalf of Christ to those for whom he died. What is lacking, Piper says, is not that they're insufficient to cover the sins of all who believe and therefore they need to be topped up in some way, but that Christ's afflictions haven't been personally presented to those for whom he died. What's lacking is that people haven't seen that Christ died for them, that he gave themselves himself for them. So Paul fills up what is lacking by bearing Christ's suffering in himself. He offers himself as the tableau upon which the cross of Christ is to be seen. Now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, he says, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. So Paul's saying, my job is to show you Christ's suffering by suffering for you. John Piper concludes, here is the astounding upshot. God intends for the afflictions of Christ to be presented to the world through the afflictions of his people. God really means for the body of Christ, the church, to experience some of the suffering he experienced so that when we proclaim the cross as the way to life, people will see the marks of the cross in us and feel the love of the cross from us. Since Christ is no longer on earth, he wants his body, the church, to reveal his suffering in its suffering. Joseph Tsong was a pastor in Romania until 1981, when he was exiled by the communist government. Knowing firsthand what it means to suffer for Christ, he thought Paul was saying this. When I walk like this, wounded and bleeding, people see the love of God, people hear the message of the cross, and they are saved. If we stay in the safety of our affluent churches and we do not accept the cross, others may not be saved. How many are not saved because we don't accept the cross? So the question is, are we willing to suffer in love to make known the suffering love of Christ for the world? The implication is startling. Christ's saving love will not be known unless we as Christ's people choose to forego our own comfort to make it known. Now, this is an open secret among the church's missionaries. Nobody's ever won for Christ's truth self-preservation, but by willing to be spent on the behalf of others. Hudson Taylor, the great inland uh, missionary to inland China, was burdened by the thousands dying daily without Christ and going into a godless eternity. Recruiting volunteers to support the work, he said, China is not to be won for Christ by self-seeking, ease-loving men and women. Those not prepared for labour, self-denial and many discouragements will be poor helpers in the work. The United Kingdom is not to be won for Christ by self-seeking, ease-loving men and women. Osset is not to be won for Christ by self-seeking, ease-loving men and women. If we want to see people won to Christ in our time and in our place, we need a missionary spirit. 
Missionaries don't do what's comfortable to them. They do what's necessary to make Christ's love known, even if it's profoundly uncomfortable to them. And so being a church that gives sacrificially is about much, much more than just digging deeper into our pockets during the offering. It's about sacrificing our personal preferences, our own comforts and conveniences, our hopes and dreams for the sake of making Christ's love known to others. In Philippians 2 verse 4, just before the famous poem about Christ humbling himself on our behalf, even to the point of death on a cross, Paul urges us not to look to our own interests, but to the interests of others. Because that's what cross-shaped living looks like. So instead of thinking about the kind of church that suits me, it's thinking about the kind of church that suits others, especially those who are not yet here, the new generation. How can we be a church for the 95% of people outside of these walls? Jesus models for us a life of downward mobility. Just consider for a moment, the one who's washing the foul feet of his followers is God in the flesh. The one stripped to the waist in service is the Lord of heaven and earth. The one who dies the most degrading death dreamed up by the Roman Empire is the king of the universe who gives life and breath to every living creature, including those who drive the nails into his hands and feet. This isn't just something Jesus does for us, though. This is something he wants his people to imitate. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Unfortunately for us, Jesus really couldn't have been any clearer on this. To be an apprentice of Jesus is to learn to live a downwardly mobile life for the sake of others. In financial terms, that means choosing to adopt a simpler, wartime-like lifestyle so that we can give away as much as possible to enrich others. Tim Keller writes, Our homes, clothing and lifestyle should be modest within our circle and neighbourhood so we can be as generous as possible. The Christian community should model to the world a society in which wealth and possessions are seen as tools for serving others and not as a means of personal advancement and fulfilment. So maybe instead of paying £10 a month for Netflix, I can give that money to Open Doors, so that my plenty may supply another's need. Maybe instead of getting a new BMW, I'll get a used Toyota. Maybe instead of getting my nails done, I'll get some, get some food for the local food bank. But as I said, giving sacrificially is not just about our money. It goes much deeper than that. It's about the attitude of our hearts. It means choosing the cross, choosing the difficult option for the sake of others, choosing the thing that is hard for me but good for someone else. That might mean going to the polling station and voting for the party that will preserve the planet for future generations, even if it means higher taxes for me now. That might mean deliberately deciding to live in a difficult part of town so that I can bring the light of Christ into the darkness. That might mean taking a really challenging job, not because it's particularly attractive, but because I believe that God could use me there to bless people and bring 
his abundant life. What is to be the most distinctive mark of Jesus' apprentice? apprentices? Their self-giving love. A new command I give you, Jesus says, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So contrary to what you may have heard, the distinguishing characteristic of Christians is not their proclivity for serving quiche at social occasions, but their love. A love which isn't just a warm, fuzzy feeling, but a resolute commitment to be for the good of the other, irrespective of how you feel about it. That's what the foot washing was all about. John says, having loved his own who were in the world, Jesus loved them to the end. Do you think Jesus enjoyed washing the stinky feet of his disciples? Do you think he relished it? I doubt it. Rather, I think his joy from beginning to end was in making others joyful. That's what the cross is all about. Christ becoming poor so that we might become rich. Christ taking our guilt upon himself so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ dying in our place so that we might not perish in our sins but have eternal life with God forever. Giving sacrificially isn't easy but anyone who wants Christianity without a cross ultimately wants Christianity without Christ. If Christ had not been willing to give sacrificially by leaving his throne in glory for a cross on Calvary, then none of us would ever have been saved. If Christ had just wanted to be comfortable, we would all still be under the curse of sin. So don't you see, the the thing that makes us pick up our cross daily to follow Jesus isn't because it's fun. It's not because it will look good in our heavenly CV, but because it's what he has done for us, for you and for me. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything that he hasn't done for us first. And we love with the love with which Jesus loves us. We're freed to give sacrificially because Jesus has given everything sacrificially to us first. So do you honestly think that you're ever going to be asked to give more than Jesus has given to you? No. Brother, as the missionary martyr Jim Elliot so wonderfully put it, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. In Christ the profit always exceeds the cost. And so to paraphrase the Apostle Paul, we, we could have the best looking website, the most amazing musical worship and bring the whole of Osset to an Alpha course. But if we have not love, we're nothing. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes, a church of faith, even if it's the most orthodox faith and that faithfully adheres to the creeds, is of no use if it is not even more a church of pure and all-embracing love. A church that calls a nation to faith in Christ must itself be the burning fire of love in this nation, the driving force for reconciliation, the place in which all the fires of hatred are extinguished 
and prideful, hate-filled people are turned into people of love. If we want to make known the self-giving love of Jesus, we must make it visible to others in our own lives. This was one of the most striking and attractive features of the early church. At a time when the rich turned out their slaves onto the streets when they became too old to be of any use, the church took them in and cared for them. At a time when unwanted babies, especially girls, were literally tossed alive into the rubbish dump, the church rescued and adopted them as their own. At a time when families threw dead bodies into the street, the church made sure that everybody, no matter how poor, received a decent burial. The pagan Roman emperor Julian, no friend of Christianity, lamented, observe how the kindness of Christians to strangers, their care for the burial of the dead and the sobriety of their lifestyle has done the most to advance their cause. He wanted to wipe Christianity out. He wanted to suppress it. But he says they were too darn loving. When horrible plagues swept through the Roman Empire in 165 AD, killing about a third of its population. And again in 251, when 5,000 people a day were dying in the city of Rome alone. Historical records show that pagan priests fled and abandoned the temples to which the sick had come for help. People were even throwing infected members of their own families into the street to die in a desperate attempt to protect themselves from the disease. But who took them in? Who cared for them? The Christians. They didn't have a supernatural ability to stop the spread of the disease or to avoid becoming infected themselves. They simply gave what they could. Food, drink, shelter, care, attention and love. Stephen Backhouse, a tutor in political and social theology, explains that in the circumstances you were statistically more likely to survive if you knew a Christian simply because they were the ones who were most likely to help you through if you were sick. In short, they literally loved people back to life. Tertullian writes that though many people in the Roman Empire used to completely misunderstand what Christians got up to when they met together, uh, they thought the the, the love feasts um, where uh, Christians shared bread and wine together, they thought that sounded a bit like sex parties and cannibalism, uh, eating someone's flesh, drinking someone's blood, a love feast, what's all that? But what they couldn't deny was the Christian's love. He explains It is our care of the helpless, our practice of loving kindness that brands us in the eyes of many our opponents. Is that true of us, I wonder? They supported and buried poor people. They adopted and cared for orphans, widows and the housebound. They helped those who had lost everything in shipwrecks. They provided for those who had been banished or imprisoned for their faith. And they did these things so naturally that Tertullian describes the astonishment of pagan neighbours looking on and saying, see how they love one another. How they're even ready to die for one another. The Christians might have seemed like a very odd bunch to their pagan neighbours, friends and colleagues, but there was one thing that set them apart from everyone else, their sacrificial, self-giving love. How many of our neighbours 
our friends, our colleagues could say the same of us. There's nothing sexy, nothing heroic or remarkable about washing feet. Yet the kind of sacrificial giving to which Jesus calls his apprentices is just that. Something that works itself out in the ordinary everyday routines of daily life. Biblical scholar Marianne May Thompson writes, The simplest task, washing another's feet, and the costliest gift, dying for another, both reflect Jesus' life-giving mission and work for others. The disciples are to do these things in remembrance of him. The foot washing is a preview of the cross. Jesus strips to the waist when he washes his disciples' feet. He's stripped bare when he's hung on the cross. And at the cross we see God naked. And what he looks like underneath is suffering, self-giving, sacrificial love. That's why Jesus says, people will know you belong to me if you love the way that I've loved you with a sacrificial, suffering, self-giving love. So I wonder, could anyone accuse us of belonging to Jesus because of the quality of the love that they see among us? Love not as the world defines it, but as defined for us at the cross. Printed preachers Charles Spurgeon once said, the world does not read the Bible. The world reads Christians. Evangelist Dwight Moody said something very similar. Out of a hundred men, one will read the Bible, the other 99 will read the Christian. And so the question is, what is the world reading when it looks at us? Is it reading the good news that the Son of God loves them and gave himself for them? Now, I'm not wet behind the ears, contrary to popular opinion. I know how this sounds to Western ears. Ears that prize comfort above virtually everything else. But I suspect that many of our brothers and sisters in the persecuted church wouldn't think this is crazy. I think they would think that we're crazy for not knowing that Christ is enough, no matter how uncomfortable we might be. Christ chose to suffer for us. He didn't have to. Nobody was twisting his arm. He chose it. In John 10, he says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my father. Now he calls us to choose suffering, to choose self-denial, to choose the cross in order to make his love known to others. So let me close with the words of a poem written by the Irish missionary to India, Amy Carmichael. And in it, she meditates on the necessary role of suffering in the Christian life, if it's to be lived for the sake of others. Hast thou no scar, no hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land, I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers, spent, leaned me against a tree to die, and rent by ravening beasts that compassed me. I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound, no scar, yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierce it are the feet that follow me. But thine are whole. 
Can he have followed far who hast no wound or scar? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are not content to sit in comfort on your heavenly throne while we drowned in our own sin, but rather that you emptied yourself of all but love, taking the form of the lowliest servant and dying the most degrading, humiliating, excruciating death imaginable in order to make us rich in you. Lord Jesus, flood our hearts with the knowledge of your suffering love until we truly and deeply feel that nothing we could sacrifice would ever really be a sacrifice because you have given so, so much to us. Oh, how you love us. Give us hearts that choose the cross, knowing that the way of the cross is where you are and in your presence is the fullness of joy. May we be so overwhelmed by all that you have so sacrificially given to us that we think nothing of giving sacrificially to others, that they might see your love for them displayed in us. And may you be enough for us. May we know deep in our souls that you and you alone are enough for us.